what percentage of innocent people is it okay to execute? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? In Florida, it's higher than 30%. So the question is, is it 2%? And would your opinion change if it was you or somebody you loved? Good morning, Edgehogs. Got one, a classic episode, I should say, today with Jason Flom and Maggie Freling. I'm not talking about classic as in it's already been out. It's a new episode. Don't worry about that. But it's classic because it's it's classic on the edge stuff, I think. We're talking about wrongful convictions. Uh, way too many people are convicted despite being innocent. And this is Jason Flom, who is an A&R music executive and activist who has worked with the Innocence Project. And his co-host, who is a TV personality, Maggie Freling, she's also a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. Wish I had a Pulitzer. I'm not sure what they'd give it to me for, but it would be nice just to have um, and show people if they came over. So they've got this fantastic podcast that I would definitely recommend called Wrongful Conviction by Lava for Good. They make podcasts about justice in America. We have a fascinating conversation. We talk about Amanda Knox and some of the most notorious cases of innocent people who are locked up. This should touch on some of the heartstrings of listeners. So I hope you enjoy this one um, and make sure to check them out. That's Jason Flom and Maggie Freling and Lava for Good podcast. Go check all that stuff out. Follow them on socials. They're really great and I appreciate them giving up their time for this to teach me and us a little bit about conviction rates and what's really going on and how we can make things better so i was fascinated got some big episodes coming up as well there's steve hassan talking about his bite model to recognize cults uh then saturday just on the, the patreon is michael rexenwald a cancelled professor who talks about atheism versus secularism that's available on patreon.com slash andrew gold and then some big big stuff next week so i hope you'll be enjoying all of that stuff but now, you're on the edge of wrongful conviction with Jason Flom and Maggie Freling. Should we do some introductions? Because I don't usually have two people on at once, two other people. So I thought maybe you could introduce each other to, to my listeners. I thought that might be nice. So okay. um, who, who, who wants to start about the other person? Oh, boy. I'll go first. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's not alphabetical order, but it's close enough. Um, so Maggie Freeling um, is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who um, won this incredible prize for her work on the wonderful podcast called Suave. And I admired her from afar um, for her you know, journalistic uh, acumen, uh, but also for her relentless advocacy on behalf of people, the same people that I'm fighting for, the same not the same people, but, you know, the people who are similarly situated in this uh, criminal injustice nightmare of the American legal system. And so um, it was uh, not that long ago that <clears throat> I asked Maggie if she would host a wrongful conviction as my counterpart, um, and she accepted, and the world is forever changed. And so, Maggie, uh, I'll turn it over to you. <laughs> Well, <laughs> um, so I've actually introduced Jason before for an award he was getting. So let's see if I ah. remember any of that. 
So that is how we did meet. Um, but Jason is a renowned philanthropist and record executive. Um, he he is your dad founded Lava, correct? And then you were you kind of took it over. And no, did, actually, I founded it. Uh, my dad had nothing it. to do with the music business. No, my dad was a, a corporate lawyer. Oh yeah. my god, I don't but know why he, I thought your dad founded it. Okay, because he taught me everything I know about everything except music. So you're oh, there almost we go. Right. So yeah. Jason, to me, is most impressive because when you were like early twenties, late teens, you signed um, Skid Row, and I think that's really freaking cool. And so basically from there, Jason became a philanthropist. He made his money. And I think the coolest thing about him is he uses his money for good, which is this podcast, helping people who are wrongfully convicted and even beyond wrongful convictions, excessive sentencing. Um, Jason has even stepped in before people have been wrongfully convicted to stop that from happening. Um, and that's all truly out of the goodness of his heart. Um, and I, I'm so grateful to be with him. This is why I got you to introduce each other because you wouldn't have done it so glowingly about yourselves. So, uh, Jason, so why why wrongful conviction of all that? I mean, everyone's got to choose a thing, right? If you, you there's, there's so many things in the world to do, and why this thing? Um, since I was a kid, I had a um, just a a visceral reaction to bullying. Right, I, I can't stand bullying, and. Um, I can't think of any worse or more profound example of bullying than when the government decides to devote its limitless resources to prosecuting, persecuting, convicting someone of a crime that they didn't commit. And in many cases, the people who are actually trying to secure this conviction are aware that there's not just reasonable doubt, but there's evidence that the person in front of them is actually innocent of the crime that they're being prosecuted for, or that the crime is a crime that never even happened. So it's not a crime, but or that they're prosecuting them for something that never even happened, which is surprisingly common in our criminal legal system, particularly among female exonerees. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. There's so much I don't know. I was just doing some research before. I read about something called Blackstone's ratio, which is that like it's better that nine people go f or 10 people go free than one one person be than one person be wrongfully incarcerated. Better um, better that sorry to interrupt you Andrew, but better that 10 guilty men go free, I think he said, than that one innocent than that one innocent should suffer. Right. Yeah. And that's how I feel, providing, of course, that those guilty people don't go on to like kill loads more people. I suppose that's what you got to think about. And then Benjamin Franklin, I think, said 100 people. Uh -huh. And then you get like these authoritarian dictatorship. The more authoritarian you get, they reverse that. And they've often, people have often said things. I mean, even like Dick Cheney, not that he's an authoritarian dictatorship, but even he said something like, you know, he'd rather 25 innocent people go to prison uh, if he can catch like a terrorist and things like that. Um, but it's such a difficult one. I mean, so, I mean, Maggie, where do you stand on, on, on that? I mean, what, on that ratio and, and what we can do to improve things? I mean, there's so much we can do to improve, um, you know, and as Jason and I always say, and many people who are who work in this field, you know, the system isn't broken, it's working the way it should. I think so a lot of us believe in, you know, an overhaul um, in so much of the system. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that we talk about that, you know, wrongful convictions often happen because police and prosecutors are unchecked. 
Um, they can really, they wield unlimited power and it's very hard to hold them accountable when they do egregious things. So, you know, without holding prosecutors and police accountable, they can just keep doing this. They can make up evidence. Um, it's police can lie to suspects. That's perfectly legal. Um, you know, so without their power being checked, I think, I think that's the, the first place to start. Yeah. And if I can jump in for one second, Andrew, I think um, Maggie and I are almost like left brain, right brain. But I just wanted to step in and say, I think what she maybe meant to say was that um, the system is working as it was designed to work. It's not working as it should. None of us believe it's working as it should. But this is how it was designed. And so it's functioning in a way that it was designed to function. But it, it's not working for public safety. It's not working for civil rights. It's not working for the individual or for our society. It's just in need of a complete overhaul, as Maggie said. What what are the stats? Do we know the stats around? And, and how can you know the stats around wrongful convictions? So the studies that have been done by the most eminent social scientists and were published in papers like The Times and others concluded that between 4 and 7% of the people in prison in America are actually innocent. Now, if you take a mid case from that study, which I think underestimates, and I can tell you why, the actual numbers, but if you take 5.5%, and then you consider that there are 1.8 million people in prison in America, as we're sitting here having this interview, that number comes out around 100,000 innocent people sitting in a cage right now, suffering in ways that none of us can begin to imagine because our system is so draconian. And that also doesn't take into account the people that are in jail, right? And jail and prison are different in that jails are almost exclusively people who haven't been convicted of a crime. They're waiting for trial because they're too poor to afford bail, right? So while Sam Bankman-Fried can post $250 million in bail and live in the penthouse in the Bahamas, which is his right. I mean, he was able to do it, so he did it. But then when you have somebody who jumps a turnstile and doesn't have 250 bucks to pose for bail, they sit in Rikers Island where last year almost two dozen people died or were murdered in inside that jail, which is only a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. And so it's so, you know, it's so imbalanced. But back to your question. So if you take the other sort of 400,000 people that are in jail, besides all the ones that are in prison, and you assume that 25% of them are innocent because none of them, they haven't been convicted of anything yet, right? They've just been arrested. So call it 20%. Then very quickly you get to another crazy number like 80,000 if it's 20% of 400,000. So, you know, call it for the sake of, argument, 150,000 people sitting in a cage in America right now, deprived of their, deprived of everything, their family, sunshine, exercise, you know, um, um, you know, th th their, their job, their livelihood, their ability to, to love or be loved or, or touch another human being in a, in a way to be hugged, anything, it's all gone, right? Be for those 150,000 or 200,000, or call it even a low number, call it 100,000 people. That's insane. It is. It is insane. Maggie, what can we what can we do about that without going too far the other way, I suppose? I suppose that's what some people listening will be concerned about, is that we go too far the other way by not, you know, uh, locking anyone up and, and too many people get 
get away and then go out and hurt people again or that kind of thing? What can we do? I mean, that so much of that is up to juries, truthfully, um, when someone gets to trial. And I think, you know, something really important that I tell people, a friend was complaining the other day about jury duty. And I said, you know, yeah, it sucks. You got to miss work. All these things suck. I was like, but you are somebody who listens to true crime podcasts. You listen to my podcast. You would be a great juror because you're skeptical and you're not just believing everything the police and the prosecutors put out there. You will hear reasonable doubt if it, if it does exist. And hopefully, you know, um, not not convince the person based on reasonable doubt. And I think in so many of these cases that we have, it's the jury being biased or bigoted in some way. This case I'm working on right now, it's two lesbians are convicted of a horrible assault just because they're lesbians, very similar to the San Antonio Four. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with educating ourselves as as the public and doing our part in, you know, like I said, um, standing up for bills that are being passed about prosecutorial immunity and um, uh, immunity for the police. I mean, things like that. It's all about the public getting involved. Hmm. For In terms of getting people interested, okay, so I look at, I think people are a bit sometimes selfish, right? And, and so we care about the things that affect us. Um, I'm like a white guy in, in middle class. Could this happen to me? Could it happen to listeners like that? Could it happen? To, or does it mostly happen? And should do you know what I'm saying? That Jason, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, and that's a very fair question. And yes, we are. Everyone is almost always out for the best for themselves and their families. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to condemn that at all. Um, I do want to answer your question, but I want to go back for a second to a, an issue you raised a few minutes ago, Andrew, which is that public safety is on everybody's mind, right? There's all this media hype, call it copaganda, about rising crime rates and this and that and the other thing. None of it's real, but it sells newspapers and it sells, you know, media. It drives people for clickbait, right? When somebody does a terrible, commits a terrible crime. But we're the only country in the world that does it this way. We didn't used to do it this way. We had 200,000 people in prison-ish around 40 years ago, right? Now we have 2 million. What has happened? There's been no benefit to public safety. There's nobody that's ever studied this that says that police and prisons are the answer to a, creating a safer society. In fact, the opposite. Every single serious study that's ever been conducted shows that the way we can build a more just and safe society for everyone is by investing into programs and communities that provide people with the things that they need to exist so that they don't become so desperate that they turn to crime. Now, obviously, there's a certain category of people that have had such horrible abuse as children that they're going to become potentially psychopathic or whatever. So those are the outliers, though. And, you know, when you look at Western Europe, which has a fifth as many people in prison per capita as we do, or Japan that has one fourteenth as many people as we do in prison, 14 times per capita in America, but the crime rates are the same everywhere. So it doesn't work. It doesn't help us. And it's true with bail as well. Every single study has shown that people who bail out are 30 to 40% less likely to commit a felony in the year after they're released than the people who are going to be released anyway after they're sent to these horrible institutions because they're too poor to post bail, which is, by the way, a violation of the Sixth and the 14th Amendment. So back to what you said. 
sorry for my long-winded uh, no, no. diatribe here. And this is, and this is why I create, you know, one of the reasons why I created this podcast is to try to influence people's hearts and minds so that we can affect this type of change. But the answer is yes, it can happen to you. It can happen to anyone. It obviously affects people who are members of marginalized communities more so and much more frequently uh, than it does people like yourself um, who have some ability to be able to, you know, hire a, an attorney that, you know, may be able to properly represent you. Our public defender system is overwhelmed and mainly because of jail churn, 11 million people going in and out of jail in America every year. There's no way the system can properly give anybody a, a fair shot if they don't have the ability to, to do what you might be able to do. But we've featured stories on our podcast of people who came from backgrounds similar to yours, Ryan Ferguson, many, many others who were ended up in the system. And once you're arrested, it's a, it's a downhill slide. As Maggie said, the cops can lie to you and they can lie to you about lying to you. And they do. So they could pick you up and charge you with a crime, Andrew, bring you in and say, look, man, you know, you seem like a nice guy. You don't really have a record. You have a nice podcast that you do. You know, you seem like a, a decent sort of fella. But the fact is, we got your fingerprints on the gun. We got a video that shows you leaving the residence right after the person was shot. We got a guy next door in the other room here who says he saw you do it. Right. But why we got, would they do that? Because they can. Because there's in America, unlike every other Western country, they're allowed to lie in the interrogation room and their goal is to get it over with. There's a saying in some of these law enforcement circles, a body for a body. They got a dead body. They need a body to take the heat for that so that they can move on and close the case. There's pressure coming from the media or the community or whatever it might be. They got to solve the case. So and it if looks you're good the person for their closure rates too. And, which is how they get funding, these, you know, stuff like that. So And they want to move up in the ladder. Mm -hmm. They want to move up the, the ladder of whatever job they're in, right? Maybe it's, if it's a, a you know, a, you know, everybody's ambitious, right? But that doesn't excuse the type of behavior that we see day in and day out. And and you know, Maggie's obviously an authority on this as well. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, Maggie, so you've, okay, so having done hundreds of these episodes, I'm interested, do you get like angry uh, emails from people because I feel like people whenever I've done stuff on like Amanda Knox or whatever people feel like you're saying that if you say that person didn't do it that you don't care about the victim but you still care about the victim you're just going that was does that happen to you if you, do you get angry people I, I actually really don't honestly um okay. I you know I, they exist they're out there I'm sure they're commenting I don't read their comments I haven't really gotten many emails from them but what I would argue is that 
we particularly care about the victim because we want to find out who actually did this, um, who actually commit the crime because they're out there probably committing more crimes, similar ones. I mean, there's so many times where, you know, someone particularly in a homicide gets away with it and commits another homicide. Um, so I would argue that we, we really care about the victims in trying to find the truth of the matter. And, and there are many of these cases, uh, Andrew, where the victim's family is begging the authorities to go and find the actual person because they know that the person who's in jail is not the person that did it. We've got, I mean, I could run off a lot of these cases and I'm glad you brought up Amanda because <laughs> she literally texted me yesterday, happy new year, big brother. She's like, we ca she calls me big brother. I call her little sister. And I think she, she's been on my podcast um, three times as an expert, uh, but also we covered her case. And, um, she is an absolutely extraordinary human being. I have n just nothing but the best things to say about her, her husband. She has this beautiful little girl now. And the whole, you know, I was, I got to have dinner with them in, uh, in Seattle recently. And they're just wonderful people. And she is the perfect example of the question. She answers the question that you asked, right? She could be your sister. You guys actually have, you know, I mean, I could see you guys being brother and sister, you know, you're more or less around the same age, it seems like. I don't know how old you are. You look yeah. pretty young. Well, um, yeah, you know, we, are, we are the same. She's like a year older than me. Go on, Maggie. So, you know, something I want to say about that, about Amanda and why with her particular case, people get in a frenzy about it. Um, it's one of the main ones people get in a frenzy about. And I think so much of that has to do with her being a woman. Um, women are very much held to a different standard than men in the courts. Um, I have multiple cases of women who are convicted on literally just sexism. Um, it's one woman that we were just on Dr. Phil talking about, Patty Pruitt, was convicted because she r really, the only evidence against her was murder mystery novels she had in her house. So she must have murdered her husband because she was reading murder mystery novels. Um, you know, she was called like basically like a slut for having affairs, which were actually not affairs. So, you know, women are held to a different standard. So when we talk about Amanda Knox, I mean, we see a lot of that in her case. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded exactly like that. It was all this stuff like, oh, she was stretching and stuff like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but did she do the actual murder? That's the main, that's what we need to know. Not she was like doing yoga in her prison cell or yeah. whatever that yeah. might be. The circumstantial stuff. Um, so Amanda Knox, that was that was Italy. So that was different. You know, that's that's the Italian prosecution. What went on there? Just for for those, I guess, for those who don't know the story, and I, I'm I'm surprised to find people don't. I think as you as you were saying, Jason, I'm a similar age to her, and also Meredith Kircher, who was the victim of that case, uh, went to the same university as me, and wow. she went abroad just as I did. I went to France, and she went to Italy. I didn't I didn't know her, uh, but it may, it meant that I was just fascinated by that case. So I got to know Amanda, and she's been on a podcast as well. By the way, tell her hi from from me, but. But yeah, so what was, who wants to take that, take us through the sort of briefly through that story? Yeah, sure. I mean, Amanda was uh, a foreign exchange student, as you said. Um, she had just gotten to Perugia, a little town in Italy, um, and had recently met a, a boy that she liked, and they were having, um, they were just starting dating, uh, Rafael Solicito. And she came home to an absolute horror scene, which was that her, uh, roommate, Meredith Kircher, had been stabbed, I think, over a hundred times. Um, and the scene was as bloody as a scene can be. Um, she was stabbed in her bedroom. The door, the window was open. 
Um, the authorities should have suspected from the beginning that a, a guy who was known to be committing burglaries in this manner, sneaking through windows and stuff in the area, would have been a logical suspect. But they decided to focus on her because they felt that she wasn't appropriately distraught um, at the time that they showed up to the crime scene. And that is something that I think is worth focusing on. And I hope, like Maggie was saying, that everyone who's listening, when you get that jury duty notice, which you may find to be a big imposition and, you know, it's disrupting to disruptive to your life, that you'll go and serve on juries. And you'll remember these things because nobody knows how anyone will react in a time of extreme duress, right? We see this going back to, I'm fascinated by World War II, right? D-Day, where you had have the biggest, toughest guys were laying on the beach crying and, and begging for their mothers while some accountant from New Jersey dragged them up the hill, right? <laughs> With glasses on and whatnot. And so nobody knows how we will react until we're placed in that situation. And the fact that people in positions of power and and us lay people, you know, jurors or anybody else, want to draw assumptions. They somebody looks too upset. They look not upset enough. They were like, you know, like you could you could you could go anywhere with this, right? What is the appropriate reaction to finding your new friend, right? They didn't know each other well, but who cares? It doesn't matter. Nobody had, hasn't been through that, has any idea, and almost nobody has been, and I hope nobody else goes through that. But uh, so that, that was the basis of how they became suspicious of Amanda, even though there was no reason to suspect her, how would she have stabbed her roommate a hundred times? But none of there was no evidence in the room that she'd ever even been in the room. Like there was no blood on her. There was no, there was nothing connecting her to the murder, nor was there any reason to suspect that this young college student who had no history of violence or mental issues or anything else would all of a sudden turn into a homicidal maniac. But like I said, trial by media, it became fodder for every newspaper and TV station in the world. Love triangle, sex, this, that. They started calling her Foxy Noxy. They replaced her identity with this sexist trope. And the next thing you know, she was she was done before it started. I mean, she had no way to get a fair trial. She was she was infamous all over the world. And of course, as in these other wrongful conviction cases, and this touches on what you said before, Andrew, what I think people need to focus on is when we wrongfully convict someone of a crime that actually did happen, and this was a very real crime with a very real victim and a real tragedy, the actual perpetrator is allowed to remain free and go inflict more horrible damage on other people who never should know that fate. And it happens again and again. The authorities get this tunnel vision like they did in Amanda's case. They make, they, they, they craft the narrative and then they craft the evidence and they ignore all the exculpatory evidence and they try to make the puzzle pieces fit where they don't fit. And meanwhile, the actual killer remains free and too often goes and victimizes other, other people who should never have suffered that fate. That Foxy Noxy thing was her soccer nickname. I didn't know that for years. And that was just, they called her that in soccer because she was fast. And they, 
they took that out of out of whatever out of context and made it into like a sexual thing in the newspapers it's amazing how that media bias works though because i remember at the time thinking that she was guilty and that's partly because in britain we it was like this defensive reaction uh, as well because meredith was like it's like one of ours and is taken by an american you know that kind of thing so i think in italy and the uk most people really did believe she was guilty um and i remember seeing her sort of as you say not reacting how one might expect whatever that even means uh and kissing her boyfriend which everyone made a big deal about and i watched that again recently when i interviewed her and it's like she doesn't look she really does look sad to me she actually i mean it doesn't matter anyway how she looks because it's just whether she did it or not what's important but she looks really sad and shocked and it worries me because i don't react i definitely don't react in the ways that i should do if i'm sad i don't look it and other people really do so that's a really worrying um thing and then there's also like online there's a huge it's almost a religion of like behavioral uh, the beha- you know there are like behavioral channels and things on YouTube that have millions of followers and people really buy into it and I do think it's a bit religious because there's this everyone's oh they look to the left they look to the right I've had people commenting under my videos saying oh Andrew's looked to the left or that means he was doing this or that and it's like you don't even know like my camera's being reversed you don't even know which what's left or right you know so I don't know right. but then there, I mean Maggie so there was with Amanda Knox that there. there was there just more, was she unlucky as well as us, you know, it was partly the media and the prosecution and stuff, but there just seemed to be a lot of evidence that, I remember watching that documentary on Netflix and the first half of it, they sort of convinced you that she did it because there was a lot of stuff against her. I, there, but there wasn't really, I mean, and not to like fully relitigate Amanda's case, but I think so much of it was circumstantial. Like Jason said, there was no evidence she was ever in her room that, you know, it was circumstantial evidence, like the knife from the house, like anyone could have taken that. Um, you know, we see that similarly with the Darley Rudier case, um, which is a very controversial one. Talk about controversial wrongful convictions. Um, a mother who's accused of killing two of her children. Um, you know, and they looked at her because, it seemed like there was evidence she did it. There was a knife missing from the house and it seems like there was no break in. And why wasn't she severely injured? So I think the evidence was missed. I don't think there was evidence pointing to Amanda having done this. And as we know, and she Dar- didn't. Yeah. And in Darley's case, you know, they, they, well, like they do, they, they made mistake after mistake, right? They claimed she wasn't severely injured and she had actually missed whoever stabbed her had missed an artery by a fraction of an inch, like a tiny fraction of an inch. So, you know, once you really dive into it and you realize no one would stab themselves in a place where they can actually kill themselves if they're, you know, they're trying to fake it. Darley's as innocent as you are, Andrew, of that crime. And she's on death row in Texas. And it's just a disgusting, wrongful conviction. And back to Amanda, by the way, I just want to put in a plug. She has a wonderful podcast, she and Chris, called Labyrinths. I've been on it. Oh, good. And there's one I have as well. And there's one episode in particular called One Bite of the Elephant at a Time that really rocked my world. So if you get a chance, um, speaking to everyone out there, check out Labyrinths and listen to that episode, One Bite of the Elephant at a Time, and, um, and, get, and get involved because we've got we've to work together to fix this stuff. How do you, Jason, how, how do you, and I, I don't mean it in the way this sentence is usually said, but how do you sleep at night? Because you know like all, about all these cases of people who you're trying to help and you, you're not going to be able to, and they're on death row. Well, um, you know, I have a saying, and I'm not a religious person, but so don't take it that way. But I've seen too many miracles to stop believing in miracles. And the fact is that sometimes we are able to help. And, you know, even um, 
you know, just before Christmas, I got the best Christmas surprise. Maggie was referring to this earlier uh, in a case I got involved with before the trial, um, which I've only done this a couple of times now, but it's been successful, where a woman was accused of shaking her baby to death. Shaken baby syndrome, for those who aren't familiar, is a nonsensical, debunked theory of um, of how doctors, uh, um, pediatricians, and others have come to rationalize why a child might die without any visible signs of abuse. And I just want to say, yeah. Jason mentioned earlier, no crime crimes. That's that's exactly it. Many women are convicted of SBS, which is, it never existed, so there was no crime. Right, right. So here you have this woman, Christina Curlis, who was, um, you know, working in a good job. Not that that should matter, but it's interesting. Had four kids, no previous issues of any kind. Um, loving family, beautiful family, and her youngest got extremely sick one day, was taken to the hospital and died. And in their rush to judgment, which happens um, uh, every day in America, these shaken baby cases happen every day. I just saw a statistic. I think it's like 200 times a month or something someone's tried on shaken baby, which the guy who created this, the, the, it, the shaken baby syndrome was actually coined by a pediatrician in England named Dr. Norman Guthkelch. And Guthkelch was, was theorizing that maybe children were experiencing certain maladies that weren't diagnosable by having been hit or some bruising or anything else because maybe the parents were shaking them. And so what he thought was if I come up with this, this, this title, whatever you want to call it, I can encourage parents to more gently wake their children or, you know, whatever they're doing, right, or shaking them to get something out of their mouth or whatever it might be, right? And then he was horrified to see that they they took this and turned it into a weapon for prosecutors to use in cases where children had just freaking died, right? As in this horrible Christina Curlis case where her son, you know, I was able to engage the top forensic um, pathologist or, or the top expert in this field in this particular syndrome in the country who did this incredible report that showed that there was 0% chance that this child died of anything other than natural causes. He had a number of pre-existing conditions that resulted in a brain bleed, which caused his very untimely death. And imagine the Imagine the trauma of losing a child, right? That's never supposed to happen. We're not supposed to bury kids. It's not the way that's, it's not the natural order of the universe. You bury your parents, right? And hopefully when they're very old, but now you've lost a child and now you're facing life in prison and sit, being separated from the rest of your children and the devastating impacts on them when they need you most, right? They've lost a sibling and the system is going to go, yeah, let's go just like as in, in the Tasha Shelby case that, that Maggie just covered on the Wrongful Conviction podcast. And they're going to go and say, yeah, let's just let's blame this on this grieving uh, mother or caretaker or father or whoever, grandparent in some cases, whoever it might be. And it doesn't it doesn't make any freaking sense. It's been disproven. It's been debunked, but it's still allowed in courtrooms all over this country. And I, I'm on a mission to try to educate people so that jurors won't fall for this because it's, 
it's I'll just I'll I'll stop after this, but it's easy for jurors to be swayed in this direction because as human beings, it's very difficult for us to process the idea that sometimes a child can just die. It 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 upsets, I think, our natural order of the universe. It's like so it's easier for us psychologically to process the idea that a bad person did something terrible that resulted in this child's death. Therefore, it can't happen to my family because I'm not a terrible person who would do something like that, right? That's the weird psychology of it, but it's not true. And we have to stop projecting that onto people and convicting them when this is the hypothesis that's presented and there's no other evidence that shows any abuse. And that's that's really typical of uh, like conspiracy theorists of all kinds, I guess. I, I spoke recently with Michael Shermo, who talks about conspiracy theories and things, and he was saying that uh, it, it's a it's a, like like what you just said. It's 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 scary to think that there are people sort of you know ruling the world and doing things behind our backs and things, but it's even scarier to imagine that no one is and no one knows what they're doing. So it's easier for conspiracy theorists to say like, oh God, it must be these, you know, minorities who are in charge and doing everything than it is to just actually face up to like bad stuff can just happen sometimes and Mm -hmm. the world's a really scary place. Um, Maggie, what happens uh, to these mothers or I guess babysitters sometimes? I know that I remember there's some babysitter stories like that shaken baby. Do they they end up in death row? Yes, Uh, Rosa Jimenez. She was, uh, she was a babysitter. Um, she was also an immigrant. She was not a citizen. And she was convicted of killing the one-year-old in her care. She was convicted of brutally shoving paper towels down his throat to choke him for whatever reason. I don't even remember what their motive was and why she would want to kill this child. Um, so not only was she put in prison, she was actually put in prison with Darley in Texas. Um, she was also threatened with deportation afterwards as well. So she had a twofold and hers was very much based on racism. I mean, the prosecutor in the case actually said some horribly racist things. Um, so yeah, these women do wind up on death row. These women wind up, do wind up convicted. And, you know, like Jason mentions, but I want to really drive it in is that women oftentimes are the primary caretakers and, you know, I think the stat, yeah, 60% of women in prison have children under the age of 18. I mean, when you rip mothers away from their children, that is just, the, it's just the domino effect. I mean, that's how so many of these people that we see that do wind up in prison come from broken homes. Um, they don't know anything else besides prison. So there is such a devastating impact on families when you especially take the woman from their children. Um I have multiple cases where a woman winds up in prison when she's pregnant. Giving birth in prison is, it is a horrific, atrocious nightmare. And besides the actual birthing process, once that child is born, where does it go? Oftentimes it's put up for adoption and mom never sees her baby again. It's put in the foster system. If there's no family or, you know, primary relative to take care of it. I've seen that happen multiple times. Women have lost their children for a wrongful conviction. Um, so the whole thing is. Oh, so, sorry, Max, I interrupt you for one second because I just want to say Melissa Lucio is another case. And I'm very proud that wrongful conviction was the first public platform to uh, shine a light on this horrible case. She was going to be executed last year by the state of Texas. Um, she did not commit a crime of any kind. 
she was um, basically forced into a false confession by extremely aggressive uh, interrogation tactics. And she has been on death row for the better part of two decades. But recently, the state of Texas granted her a new trial. So we're all rejoicing. Her, de- her execution date came and went. She was not put to death, which we're all extremely grateful for. And now She's going to get a new trial. So this is the power of what we do with the Wrongful Conviction podcast. Not always. I wish it was more. I wish there were, you know, hundreds of stories like this. But the ones that do actually, you know, result in some, you know, positive movement, as in Melissa's case, well, it's very positive movement, right? Because she'd be dead had not. And it became a big movement. Lots of people got involved in this. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis, other people spoke out, you know, major um, um, people covered this case, but we were, we were the first. And I wanted to say too, on the Christina Curlis case, um, you know, kudos to the prosecutor because presented with the evidence that we were able to find by getting the right experts involved, the prosecutor dropped the charges against her right before Christmas. So there will be no trial. And she can now try to start the healing process, which she's doing. And now she wants to devote herself to helping, you know, others in her situation because she's just that person. You know, it's like I always say, Andrew, I have so much respect and love for the people who've been through hell for no through no fault of their own and come out carrying buckets of water for the people they left behind. And She's that person. Luckily, we have, where she was able to avoid that fate entirely because she never had to go to prison, but she was in jail for a while before we were able to bail her out. So, But so many of the people that Maggie has helped, um, that, that we've been able to help, other podcasts have resulted in, in people being freed. And so many of these people come out, and of course, Innocence Projects and other organizations, they come out and all they want to do is help others. It's incredible. I suppose... Um- and it, it it really is incredible. I mean, the work you guys do is is I'm so happy you do it. Um, but I, I suppose I suppose the devil's advocate argument that some people will be thinking is, you know, I suppose I think one percent of the of society are psychopaths. There's 350 million people in the states, so that means there are three and a half million men and women who might put stuff put stuff down a baby's throat or something, you know. And how will we know? One percent are psychopaths. That's a pretty depressing. I swear I dated some of that one percent. I know I have. Um, Um, We're not aware that statistic comes from, but I would even. I'm a statistical guy, so I would say the one percent. You know, you have to get. Does that include babies? Does that include senior citizens? Does that include? I mean, you know, I think it's a fraction, a very small fraction of one percent are really psychopaths. And um, and again, if we want to address these problems, we have to address them at the at the source, right? We have to provide, you know, a pathway for people to be able to have a decent life. And if we do, and that includes child services, and that includes, you know, look, when you look at the people on death row, aside from the innocent ones, the ones who really committed terrible crimes, almost all of them had horrible abuse in their childhood. And that doesn't excuse their behavior, but it explains it. And, you know, Mark Bookman wrote a very good uh, book called uh, 12 Essays on the Death Penalty, which Professor Mark Bookman, which really dives into this. And I learned a lot reading it. So, uh, but I wanted to say one more thing on the shaken baby thing. Um, We did a whole series of episodes on the Wrongful Conviction podcast on junk science hosted by Josh Dubin. And um, 
Shaken Baby Syndrome was one of them. And I encourage people to listen. If you're going to listen to one episode, listen to the Wrongful Conviction podcast. I mean, first of all, listen to Maggie's episodes because I hate to say it, but hers are better than mine. <laughs> but that's beside the way. Listen to the Wrongful Conviction Junk Science episode. You can just Google it or whatever, whatever platform you listen to podcasts, because I think it'll really, it'll really, um, give you some some important things to think about it's it's it is fascinating yeah i didn't know that it wasn't a thing as well so i'm learning as we as we speak um the psychopath thing i think it's one percent of society in general and then apparently among ceos and political leaders and things like that it's like three or four percent which is still (laughs) still relatively low journalists actually have a high percentage of psychopathy as well i've read that yeah it's what like, about it's like, like media people, apparently. Like, yeah. <laughs> what about like dentists? <laughs> oh, I can see that. <laughs> and toll booth operators. Remember, that's surgeons. not really a job anymore. Oh, surgeons. It must, right? yeah. it must be high with surgeons. Yeah. Dexter, come on, man. What the hell? Yeah. yeah. I've got a friend who's um, training to be a doctor and he thinks it must be much higher. The stuff they have to do, you have to have no like reaction to. Because there are a lot of like um, psychopaths who don't want to murder anyone. You know, that's most of them don't they just want to go on go about their lives i guess and apparently date maggie so (laughs) it's true (laughs) so um i think we've all had those experiences with with people haven't we and uh maybe they think that of us who knows but um, yeah so what tell me about you know what i was looking into um a lot of this wrongful conviction stuff and i came across julius jones who i hadn't heard of because there's probably a lot of things that in america are huge stories that don't quite get over to here but kim kardashian got really involved how did kim kardashian get all in all wrapped up in that one well she got wrapped up in it because i went to my friend scott budnick um scott is um sort of he and i are like brothers he's the west coast i'm the east coast he comes from the movie business i come from the music business but he has done extraordinary work on um, on reforming the criminal legal system out there. And Scott and I were having uh, lunch at uh, the Bowery Hotel in New York. Uh, I told them about the Julius Jones case and how outrageous it was, because it is even by our standards. And I spoke to Julius a couple days ago. He'd be very happy to know we're talking about him now. Um, and Scott called Kim, um, and Kim jumped right in. Um and she is a force of nature. Um, I know she has her detractors, whatever. I have nothing but positive things to say about her. She is she is really dedicated to this cause and she's smart and she is doing it, in my opinion, for all the right reasons. And um, she dived in and she, I mean, I'm talking about this woman flew to Oklahoma with Scott at the height of the pandemic. I didn't go because I was like, I'm not trying to go to Oklahoma in the height of the pandemic. Now I'm uh, I'm significantly older than both of them, so maybe I was more vulnerable. But they flew and and went to visit Julius in prison, and then went to see the governor, had dinner at his home. Like they went to extraordinary lengths, Kim and Scott, to help prevent the execution of an innocent man named Julius Jones, and. You know, they, they, our efforts, our collective efforts were successful. Of course, we did a podcast on his case that I think generated a lot of attention. Kim was on the podcast with me. Um, she devoted herself to that. I mean, yeah. So I, I don't, you know, I, like I said, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful that she's part of this fight because we need her and, and many more um, people of, of stature to, to get involved. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I was amazed just looking this up as well because I'd never watched her show. I didn't I didn't form an opinion one way or the other, but I was because I thought it was this like reality stuff and it was all about superficial things and but apparently even on her show they spoke about this case and it became a big like topic in her in the series. Um Maggie, what is this what is the story of of Julius Jones for people who don't know? You know what? I am not as familiar with that one. That is very much a Jason case. It's a Jason case. I'll let it's Jason, Jason do case. It. Yeah, so in a very brief uh, synopsis, um, a local prominent member of the community, um, I'm, I'm sadly I'm spacing out on, the, on the, na- the name of this man, but he was a uh, sort of a pillar of the community and he was uh, carjacked in his own driveway. His family was there and the person who was attempting to steal his vehicle uh, shot and killed him. It should have been apparent from day one who the person was. Um, I think everyone knows by now who the person was. Uh, that was a person that Julius sadly had tried to mentor at the behest of his basketball coach who, you know, knew that Julius could hopefully have a positive impact on this young man who was very troubled. And that guy responded to this kindness by going and planting the gun in the attic in Julius's home. Um, and then leading the cops to the house who then went into the house and found this gun hidden within seconds. So how did they know? Well, it's not hard to figure it out. But the um, the evidence, there's overwhelming evidence that points to this other uh, person um, who served 15 years in his home now. Um, he has uh, confessed to various people, but will not come forward publicly. He's also suffering from some serious uh, mental challenges, I think related to the guilt that he feels about having put this person who was so kind to him, Julius Jones, in prison and on death row and come within a few hours of execution. Um, And lastly, I'll just say that his trial was a fucking joke. Um, One of the jurors said, one of the jurors came to the judge and said that another juror had said, why don't we just take this N-word out behind the courthouse, shoot him and bury, uh, take him out and shoot him and bury him underneath the courthouse. And so one of the other jurors complained to the judge and the judge said, don't worry about it, we're good. You know, and Ah. that's just the beginning of the problems in this case, right? So Julius is, uh, I I think, (laughs) I'm remembering now, Julius's attorney died actually before the trial, and he was then stuck with somebody who really wasn't very familiar, didn't have time to prepare, et cetera. The whole thing was a circus. And, of course, you have a black kid in Oklahoma accused of murdering a prominent white person. Um, His name is Paul Howell. Thank you, Paul Howell. Yes, I, I, I want to. I'm glad you pointed that out because I don't want to forget that there's a very real victim in this case and a family that was left without a dad, and it's horrible. But it's not made better by putting the wrong person in prison for the crime. You know, and we see that and, with with Adnan's case right now. I mean, this family is tortured, tortured, and now they're in the middle of this, you know, whole political. You know, he wasn't properly released, and the family's being used as a pawn. I mean, it is. It is devastating. Is that the guy from the that podcast? Yes. The Mer- what was it called? Yes, the podcast? Serial. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? So what's? Where's he at the moment? What's going on there? Everyone was trying to get because he was in prison and it didn't. It was thought he was wrongfully convicted. Yeah, so he's out. Um, but now the attorney general is saying that he wasn't properly released, like some really unprecedented bullshit. And the family is saying that they weren't notified that he was being released in a timely manner. So now they're trying to put him back in prison. 
Um, because the family still thinks that he did it. I mean, they've been used all of these years. They've been lied to all of these years. Man, because I know Jason was saying before that often the family don't want that person, they want to catch the real person. But also a lot of these, when I was just reading through Wikipedia quick, quickly, you know, whenever it looks like someone's about to get off, often it, it's the opposite. Often the family don't want that because they, they've put it all into that person yes. being the, the killer, right? Yes. That's exactly right. And also imagine the trauma of having to go through this, um, relive it and realize that you were, were lied to and misled all these years and that the person who actually killed your loved one has been free this whole time while the wrong person, while the situation has been exacerbated and the wrong person has been, you know, forced to suffer. I mean, that's a lot for somebody to process when they've lost a loved one. It's much, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but it's not hard to imagine that it's much more comfortable. I mean, and also we generally all trust the authority figures, right? If you're, whether you're a victim or the family of a victim or a juror or anything else, we all grow up thinking those people are doing their level best, right? The people that are in positions of power, we want to believe that. It's you know, that's the society I think we all want to live in. But unfortunately, there are reverse and perverse incentives, as we touched on earlier, for a lot of these people who are in these positions of great trust, authority, and power. And sadly, they abuse it um, way too often. And in the process, the rights of the family of the victim or the victim themselves themselves get trampled on. As well as, of course, the accused person who ends up, in, you know, suffering in, in, in unimaginable ways, as Julius Jones uh, has done. But look, the state, but look, the state of Oklahoma is, is still trying to execute Richard Glossop now for the eighth time, right? And he's one of the most obvious innocence cases in the history of the world, right? No one's ever even claimed that he was even in the room when this murder happened. Again, a very real murder, a very real victim, Barry Ventries. But Richard Glossop had nothing to do with that or anything else. He never had a speeding ticket in his life. He's an innocent man. And the state of Oklahoma, Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma is for the eighth time trying to execute him in February in spite of overwhelming evidence of actual innocence. So I gather that like in, in the States, maybe in other countries as well, um, it's become a bit of a business, prisons and things, the people who supply the prisons with food and things like that. It's all, you know, there's an interest in arresting more people, which is incredibly sad. But what about this sort of the, the death row stuff and the ex execution stuff? What it, why is Oklahoma in particular, why are these people obsessed with taking a life? Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I have no answers for why we are obsessed with killing people in the United States. I really can't. Yeah, why? I mean, why are people pro-life and pro-death? Like, how is that even? How does that work? And and the question is, you know, as I think Brian Stevenson, the great Brian Stevenson, said, "Why do we kill people to prove that killing people is wrong?" And then the other thing, the other great quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it that Brian said is. Approximately one in 10 people that have been executed in this country were innocent. So if one out of every 10 planes that took off crashed, nobody would fly. And the problem I have, and there will be listeners of yours who believe in the death penalty, and what I would say to them is, what percentage of innocent people is it okay to execute? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? In Florida, it's higher than 30%. So the question is, is it 2%? And would your opinion change if it was you or somebody you loved? That's my question. And if the answer to that is, if the answer to, to zero, 
And I've had people say to me with a straight face, well, we just got to fix the system and make sure it works properly. And it's never going to be perfect. Well, what if there's a video? We've got cases with videos where the video turned out to have, you know, whether it was blurry, there could be a twin, there could be. That's a, that's Actually, a I'm working example, on a case right now happen. where the prosecution uh, purposefully doctored the video. So. Hmm. There you go. Like, imagine that. Like, why would you want to do that to take a life? That's the person who did that should be on death row. You know, not not. I don't really mean that. But. Right, and that's what I, we were saying earlier. Is that the prosecute? There is no uh, penalty. They do what they want. They do what they want, and they keep doing it, and they can keep they doing have, it. They have absolute immunity, and you're exactly right, Andrew. Because John Thompson, who was came within a month of being executed in Louisiana, and then proved that the prosecutors knew that he was innocent before they prosecuted him. And he wrote an incredible op-ed in the New York Times where he said, why is it that this prosecutor is not being charged with attempted murder? I don't understand. They knew I was innocent. I've proven that. And they put me on death row anyway. So it's like... Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When, when, I, when I've, I have asked um, more conservative viewers of, of mine about that, sort of the, what seems to many of us, I'm, I'm sort of a center-left kind of guy, it seems contradictory, the pro-life and, and pro-death thing but they they always say um well it's different because it's you know a child is innocent and a, and a someone on death row is not but what i think what they're not taking into account is you know so i guess philosophically speaking they're saying if someone is guilty then it's okay but i think maybe a lot of them are not okay with innocent people dying they just don't know that so many innocent people are killed Probably. well they're gonna thanks to you they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna know now <laughs> yeah yeah well you got yeah, to speak to people softly because otherwise they don't take on you know they feel they're being attacked and everybody's got their tribes don't they and they sort of you know it starts to feel like your identity is being attacked sure and, you know 100 percent right and and i do want to just throw out that the florida thing in case you think it was hyperbole in the same period of time that florida executed 99 people after the reinstatement of the death penalty down there 31 32 now have been exonerated from death row and imagine how hard it is to get yourself exonerated from death row with no money and no resources and everything stacked against you. And then we know that innocent people have been executed by the state of Florida, like Jesse Tefaro and others. And we know that there are innocent people right now on death row in Florida. Nelson Serrano, okay, James Daly, uh, Christian Maharaj. I mean, two, two men in their 80s, in their mid-80s are on death row in Florida for crimes they absolutely, definitely did not commit. Nelson Serrano, we did his case on my podcast. I, I had to like, I had to like literally have like a lobotomy after that. He was in Atlanta when the crime happened in central Florida, provably so. And yet he was convicted of a quadruple homicide, a 62-year-old man who had never done anything wrong in his life. And he's been in death row ever since. And now he's like 85 years old and just, I mean, on freaking death row. So it's it's not hyperbole when I say that Florida is is not even at 70% getting it right for people that they're executing. It's, it's really, I mean, if that doesn't shake people to their core, then we have to have another conversation. We have to do another podcast. <laughs> to, to add i'm just thinking out loud here but to add another layer of complication to the sort of philosophy side of this um you know we i guess we feel the state doesn't have the right to take a life someone might be innocent but some people would actually prefer to have their life taken than to have to spend 80 years in prison you know so to what extent do you then say well do we have to extend that and go well you can't lock anyone up for 80 years in case they're so that's what i guess i'm just thinking out loud i don't know, really know it's an unfinished thought i'm having maggie what do you well, think about my you know i think i think here in the u.s we are 
unique in so many ways, but particularly in that our prison system is not set up to reform. It's it's a penal system. Um, we're not like the Netherlands where the maximum sentence for anybody is 20, 25 years and you go to this reformatory and you get out and we hope that you have a productive life in society. We don't do that in the US. So not only do we lock people up really willy-nilly at times, um, we aren't doing anything to rehabilitate them. So, so a lot of these people are not on death row. A lot of these people do not have life without parole sentences. So they will be getting out. And that is a huge problem to lock somebody away for decades and not do anything to help them once they are out. Um, mm. So I forget what your original question was, but <laughs> I just like started thinking about this and got so mad, you know, yeah. particularly, you know, my podcast Suave. We covered Suave. He was given a life without parole sentence when he was a juvenile. We've changed the laws. This man gets out after 31 years in prison. Fortunately, in Pennsylvania, he was able to take classes as a lifer. Most of the times you're not. So you are a 50-something-year-old mm -hmm. man getting plopped into the world, and we just expect you to go out there and succeed and not commit a crime, even if you never have. You have to pay money to be on parole in the United States. When you get out of prison and you don't have a job and you can't pay for parole, you go back to prison. Like we really are set up in this country to keep people incarcerated and not rehabilitate and fix. And that's really a huge problem. It's a scary thought. Where, where do you guys um, want to send people, podcasts, websites, and things? Well, thanks for thanks for asking, um, and it's been really fun talking with you. You're uh, you're an, a great interviewer and an interesting guy, and uh, I can see why your show is so popular. But yes, um, please go to the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. Um, we also have a new show called. It's available on anywhere you get your podcast: Apple, Spotify, iHeart, you name it. Um, and we also have a new show called Bone Valley that's a huge hit, which is an insane murder case in Florida that I think people will, will Yeah, if you want to learn about the Florida system. About. Yeah, that's that. amazing. So, yeah, go to that and check out on your local Innocence Project. I um, mean, the Innocence Project in New York, I'm I'm on the board there, have been for 25 years, but there are Innocence Projects in your local communities. There's Innocence Projects all over the countries. You know, great, great resources there. Go to the, the website, learn more get involved um, any any way you possibly can because your voice matters. And and most of all, serve on juries and vote in local elections, DA and prosecu prosecutors races, DA races, judge races. Those are Huge. crazy important, right? Crazy. That's how we change the system. We elect progressive prosecutors and we'll have a better and fairer system for everyone. Or, or And progressive is a strange word, so let me change that. We elect prosecutors who are actually interested in justice as opposed to interested in just getting convictions. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. So check okay, out Wrongful okay. Conviction. There it is. And, Wrongful and there, Convictions. On my shirt, I made it easy for everyone. <laughs> everyone go check that out. Our guests have given up their time to come on and do this. So please, please do go and do it. And I love what you guys do. Like, you know, I, I, we need people like you. You're, you know, we, we all do. And we all might really need you. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for and having you us. And if you want to follow us, you can follow us on social media as well. I'm at It's Jason Flom, I-T-S-J-A-S-O-N-F-L-O-M. And Maggie, it's just you Maggie are Freeling, F -R -E -L -E -N -G. Go follow them and follow me as well because not enough of you do. But uh, yeah. Thanks. You actually I'm have a lot to. of followers. That's, that's good. <laughs> I was just looking.
Thank you, Jason from and Maggie Frelling from the Wrongful Conviction podcast by Lava for Podcasts. Go check that out. Go follow them on Twitter and socials and all those things. They deserve it. They're doing a really honourable thing by, by shedding light on, well, what I would call atrocities, really. Atrocities of justice. So go check those things out. Got some big episodes coming up very soon. Stephen Hassan talking about um, cults and the bite model and Michael Rexenwald behind the paywall that's patreon.com slash Andrew Gold talking about atheism versus secularism and everything in between he was this cancelled professor so he's going to talk about all that stuff hope you enjoyed today's episode and yeah have a good week with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.